Well, hello and welcome to Finding Our Way, our Southridge Church member podcast designed to give people the inside scoop on life in our church. Here's our host and lead pastor, Jeff Lockyer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Finding Our Way. I am super excited uh, today to be joined by a special guest and dear friend of Southridge's, a lady by the name of Patty Crawick, who is a brand new author. Patty, how you doing? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I asked you before we hit record whether you've been podcasted out because <laughs> with a book release, uh, it feels like this is probably what you've been doing all day, every day for the last few weeks. No? A lot of conversations. Yes, it's been, it's been good. It's been good because you don't want to launch a book and then have nobody want to talk about it. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Be the worst. <laughs> Our local church uh, has become very good friends with you over the years. Uh, the leaders listening from outside of Southridge may not be that familiar with you. So spend a couple of minutes just kind of introducing yourself, your background, and uh, how we connected. And then uh, we'll dive into all the fun stuff that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So Gary and I and the kids, actually, uh, we went to Southridge even back when it was still Fairview Love. Um, so that's going back a few years. And then, uh, so we were you know, kind of involved in the church there. I was in the nursery and then we moved to Niagara Falls, decided to, after a few years of commuting, decided to go to church in our own community. Um, but I stayed in touch, uh, with a few of the people from Southridge, um, and, you know, had a lot of conversations with them. And then, you know, I had actually a good conversation with Mike. One time we got talking about books, and then that just kind of became everything we talked about. And yeah, and, and so then that's kind of, and then when Mike was, sorry, it wasn't Mike, Nate um, was putting together the kind of, at that point, it didn't really have a name yet, um, but just kind of a group of people from Southridge that wanted to better understand in relationship with Indigenous people and how the church could do better. And so Mike directed him, Nate, to me. And so that was how Nate and I, so that was kind of how we got talking on relationship with Indigenous people, um, you know, was was through Nate and the group that he was putting together. And being an advisory voice to Southridge these days, uh, while it may feel like a full-time job sometimes, is is not actually what you do all day. So how, how do you spend your days other than talking about your book on podcasts? Other than promoting my book? Uh, well, I, yeah. I was a, a social worker for 16 years. Um, so I'm retired from that. And yeah, so this is what I do. So because I basically went from retirement to writing, uh, you know, to, to writing a book. Uh, you know, I've got articles out there. I've got a sub stack that I publish on with some regularity. So I spend a lot of time writing and talking. And my biggest interest is in helping people bridge those relationships because myself, you, you know, I'm the embodiment of these bridged relationships, right? My parents also went to Southridge, um, you go to, you know, for, for a number of years before my dad's health started to fail. And, you know, and they're, you know, my mom's family is refugee, refugees from Europe, you know, post-war Europe. So I carry that, those relationships as well. So how can we put these two parts of Canada together, you know, the indigenous peoples who have our own rights, you know, to sovereignty and to basically live without interference, but in good relationship with, you know, with migrants and settlers and newcomers to Canada, how do we live together in this space? And that's really something that I think about a lot. That's been 
my conversations, you know, with Nate and, and Lori and a lot of the others there. And that's also kind of the crux of the book is how do we, how do we live together in this space in a way where, you, you know, the indigenous peoples aren't always the ones that have to give in and, and give in and give in while everybody else kind of runs wild. Hmm. And certainly, you know, that's how you, I wouldn't say got connected, but that's how you re-engaged uh, yeah. through Nate and through uh, this fledgling group where uh, I think one of your early inputs uh, was to recommend a name for this group. And this, this yeah. group that was, like you said, discovering how we as a church can take responsibility for improving and, and being bridge builders uh, in our relationship with Indigenous folk. Uh, you, you suggested that this group call itself Becoming Good Relatives. And yes. so since then, that's what this group has been called, this, this Becoming Good Relatives uh, community, uh, which has very specific intention in the title. Uh, so I guess just first things first, what was behind the title and those three words that, that you recommended? You know, I, <laughs> wow, that's a really good question. Cause that was a long time ago for me. That really is the most important thing and becoming good relatives suggests that we aren't good relatives right now. <laughs> it suggests that it's a work in progress, yeah. that it's a, that it's something yeah. You know, that it's a task to be undertaken and a goal to be worked towards. And I think that was something that was very much part of what we had been talking about. So it felt like a good reflection of the conversations we were having. Yeah, to me, I, I when Nate had, had thrown that around and said, hey, pa Patty recommended this, what do you think? I, I, I couldn't believe how much our, our leadership resonated with it, for starters, because doesn't force you it it declares that you're not that there's a an issue a problem that you've got to uh, take responsibility for addressing but at the same time it recognizes that we are relatives yes that there is at least intended to be a relationship there that's quite awakening i think for people who've never thought uh, who've never thought through that that framework before and probably most of all i love the work in progress language of the word becoming that the word, if this isn't the good relatives team, this is right. the becoming good relatives team. And uh, I, I just really appreciated that and thought, wow, as a first, as a first sort of, you know, little crumb of input that you provided uh, already that had really significant input in uh, and influence in, in who we were becoming. So since then, I would say from your seat, have you actually gotten a sense that a local church like Southridge has been moving in that direction? You know, is there such a thing as a church becoming good relatives with Indigenous people? And at least when it comes to Southridge, what have you seen? Uh, wow, that's also really big questions. I think, I think the willingness to examine things, that's, you know, kind of my biggest, like, that's where I start off in the book you know, that's kind of the premise that, that I'm beginning with is the willingness to examine um, beliefs, theology, place in this area, um, priorities, you, you know, the willingness to examine all of those things is rare. I don't see it or hear it a lot. Um, 
you know, like when I launched the book, we had, we did it at Silver Spire, which is another church that is doing, you know, that is working on this, you know, becoming, you know, how, you know, how are we going to, you know, become better relatives and prove our relationships? Because like you said, we are related. We are related. That's not a question. You know, we all live here together. So how do we become, you know, become good to each other? And I think that willingness to examine, to question, to ask questions, um, I think that's that's been really important, and I've have valued that a lot. Uh, one of the major functions, because this team now, as it's evolved, it has some some strands. And uh, for leaders outside of Southridge who are listening, we're, we're going to talk about each of these strands. One of them is kind of a subgroup of this team. Uh, whose specific focus is to help our local community uh, better implement the calls to action that are specific to the church uh, found in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report. Um, from your perspective and, and from the Indigenous community's perspective, why is that so important for a local church to pay attention to? Well, the Truth and Reconciliation Report um, offers a path forward. You know, because everybody wants to get to the reconciliation part without necessarily spending a lot of time on the truth part. And the calls to action mm-hmm. make things very tangible. And, you know, these are very specific things that church communities can do. And most of it, you know, and it is things that church communities do, not things that Christian individuals do. Because, you know, we can get along well as people, but that's not going to impact the broader structures that are creating, you know, the inequities that Indigenous people live with. Um, You know, so these calls to action are very concrete steps that church communities can take to look at their own practice and then to make some changes that will have impact on on local and national Indigenous communities. One of the most immediate calls to action in the the five that are, are specific to local churches uh, involves the the Pope's apology. I'm not going to ask you about the Pope's apology and the tour to Canada, and that's probably another podcast that you don't want to have with me. Um, <laughs> but my question is this: Be, beyond just requiring the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church to apologize, w- w- what kind of apology should? garden variety local churches of all kinds of different stripes, including ours, provide and in what form to constructively nurture and encourage reconciliation? I think, see, because the the call to action regarding apology for the Pope is because of the Catholic Church's role and the very specific things that the Catholic Church did. Um, you know, in terms of operating the schools, uh, you know, the land base, the money that was extracted from communities, uh, you, know, you know, all of those things. And I mean, and how do you even begin to say sorry, you know, for that, you know, for that kind of stuff? I think for local churches, it's going to be a little more complicated than that, because it's going to mean looking at the history of both the local church as well as the denomination for what were we doing during the residential school period, what were we doing? Particularly, I think for the Mennonite church, it's important because so many Mennonites came here fleeing, like my grandmother, um, you know, my mom's side, you you know, was a German Mennonite who, you know, first fled the Ukraine for Germany and then fled Germany to Canada. You know, so 
in fleeing here and finding safety here, at what price did that safety come? So for the Mennonite church, whether it's Southridge in in particular, the denomination in, in general, it's about looking through the history of the church, like back when you guys were Fairview Loaf, you know, and kind of back through those generations. What, what was the church doing during the residential school period? And, you, you know, where was it silent in a church that has such a reputation for, you, you know, for pacifism and for, you, you know, that kind, that kind of activism? Why was the church silent in that regard? You know, kind of what was it? And, and then... You know, and so that's going to be the the repentance and reflection piece of it is really coming to understand what were our beliefs that allowed us to be silent, and how are those things still a part of our church? How are those things still a part of our practice? And what are we silent about now? You know, what should we be thinking about now? And so I think that's the more complicated apology that contemporary churches or churches you know kind of need to be making thinking thinking about and not even necessarily rushing towards i think there's still a lot of uh, of of reflection on just what exactly what exactly you're sorry for hmm. and it's related even to your description of what a becoming good relatives team ultimately exists to do and that's first things first to examine things yeah. So for church leaders who are listening that are thinking, hey, how can we build a better bridge with Indigenous folks if we're going to be uh, living out or applying some of these calls to action from the from the TRC? Like the examining that's required to dig into our history, into our underlying beliefs or even our, our theology uh, that describes why we did certain things or why we were silent in certain eras like that. That's an examination that doesn't just shake out of your sleeve and I'm sorry during the announcements at the beginning of a Sunday morning service. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Another one of the call to action uh, calls to action uh, that I understand you have some passion around uh, involves financial investment that the church would financially uh, in a regular way be contributing to local indigenous work and more specifically that it would be contributing with no strings attached. Describe for us why that's such a critical piece in the church's nurturing of reconciliation. Well, because the churches have really benefited from, I mean, churches were invited to set up shop on indigenous land, you, you know, and so what does it mean to talk about grace and mercy and forgiveness for me, you know, from God to me on land that was stolen, you know, my home, you know, built on land that was taken, you know, all of the, are the wealth that the church has built both from individuals and as denominations has come at a price. And so by returning that, I mean, I mean, my foundation, um, Nikanagana foundation, our website is payyourrent.ca. And that's what that came from is if you can't physically give back the land, at least you can pay some rent. That's really the least you can do. And it really is about turning it over to indigenous people and then trusting us to spend it in the way that makes the most sense for us. Um, Not to hand it over. And, And then I would even suggest to go so far as to make a time period commitment. Um, you know, like when I when my foundation supports indigenous 
communities and different work that's being done, we commit to a six month period of, um, of support. And that's just because, you know, our, that that's just what our capacity is because we're small. Um, but that way they can count on that money and they're not worrying about, um, you know, what, you know, is the money going to come next month? They know, they know that it will. And so for churches to make, you know, a long-term lease commitment, <laughs> you know, this is, this is, you know, Mississaugas of the new credit of, of the credit land. So we are going to commit to a five-year lease of providing funds to, you, you know, to the, to these, or to these organizations. And then, you, you know, like a thought experiment is what if you really did turn over your land to these people and then have a lease? How does that change your relationship with them? When you are now motivated to not be evicted, you know, that profoundly shifts, you know, shifts the relationship from one of, you know, kind of paternal donations to, you know, something of a more equal footing, a more reciprocal relationship. Yeah, the move to becoming good relatives, I appreciate that. It's more than for a lot of Christians and especially a lot of church leaders, we live in the privileged paradigm of charity. And that's not what this is about. This is about mutuality and reciprocity. So for leaders listening, let's understand, you know, where the finish line is ultimately and and the kind of things that betray that finish line versus can contribute to it productively. Yeah. And very early on in in our in our meetings, I had invited Sean Vanderclass, who's a um, he's back on One Dish, One Mike now. Um, And, you know, to to a podcasting friend of mine. Yes. Yes. Sean Vanderclass. And he had suggested in terms of kind of forming relationships, because we were talking about the work about, that the shelter was doing and how the shelter could really provide, um, you know, good support to the residents through the Niagara Regional Native Center. At that time, Sean was on the board and he recommended joining the Friendship Center, you know, kind of coming out to activities. There's, you know, there's often public activities. There was just a powwow. There's always socials being advertised. Um, You you know, like basically any service that the Friendship Center offers is open to everybody. It's not just open uh, to Indigenous people. And so he was suggesting that people from Southridge come out to activities, not just to build relationships, because, you know, you show up often enough, eventually you'll become familiar but to see us as somebody other than someone who needs help, right? Like to see us as people who are capable of managing a multi-million dollar organization, you know, like an organization with, you know, multiple, you know, multiple millions of dollars in its annual budget, you know, capable of post-secondary education, capable of professional careers, you know, so it's not just about, you, you know, about building relationships with us. We can do that you know, through that kind of charitable giving and volunteering, but that gives us a very two-dimensional view of who Indigenous people are. And it also gives Indigenous people a very two-dimensional view of who Christians are, because now they're always the people who are helping, um, you know, who are donating. They're not people with their own lives. And so seeing us in these other, seeing each other in these other capacities, seeing us as people who are, are capable also makes it easier to hand over money without strings because you can see that we're capable. You know, you can, you know, you know that you can trust yeah. us because you've seen us in action. And then we know that we can trust you too, because we have seen you, we have broken bread with you. We have, you know, kind of spent time with you. And so now we also know we can trust you. Yeah. Very important for those of us leading churches to, to hear and to understand because, 
this is a different kind of relationship that many local churches come from. And the, the, the ways of relating of local churches, as you get into it and examine it, it that's, that's kind of the problem. <laughs> I know in, in broader context, we've been affected by a book called When Helping Hurts. Mm. And, you know, that default of the church to have that, I call it the savior mentality, or worse, the white savior mentality, um, that's actually way more the problem than we realize. And so mm. I appreciate, Patty, you describing just what the power of simply establishing friendship on, you know, level footing and, and entering into each other's worlds can can do. Um, that segues nicely into your book because your your the title of your book is called Becoming Kin. And yes. uh, I, I'm just curious to, to get a bit of background on like, where did the book come from? Uh, even where did the title, what was the whole vision of the title? What drove you to write it? Have you always been an author? Just give us a, a bit of a summary of the genesis of the book. Um, I have not always been an author. I have off, I have been tweeting, uh, teaching or sorry, tweeting Twitter, like a job for a while. And I guess that's kind of like writing. Um, but what happened was I heard a sermon about identity and I think it, it came, it was out of Galatians and it was about how we're all the same in Jesus, you know, no Jew, no Greek, no, you know, no male, no female, blah, 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 that passage. And the sermon was all about how we're all the same and how identity politics has just gotten out of control. You know, when we think of ourselves as this or that, but Jesus says we're all the same. And I just sat there feeling very erased because I don't stop being any of those things when I walk into a church. Um, and so I, I was, I was really distraught. And so I, you know, so I, I reached out to Mike. I was like, am I losing my mind? Did I hear what I think I heard <laughs> in this sermon? And we started talking and he offered me another way to look at it you know, to look at these words from Paul, that maybe what Paul is talking about is hierarchy. And so then that resulted in an article I submit, I sent to Sojourners magazine about the church finding home on indigenous land and erasing us, uh, erasing indigenous identity. Mm. And that's, and then a publisher from Broadleaf Books approached me and asked if I had ever thought of writing a book. And so that's, you know, so it was really kind of a found in the malt shop story. It was really, it, you know, and, and I've really enjoyed working uh, with Valerie. Um, but then that's kind of what this book became was how do we re-examine our history because it's about unforgetting the past. So how do we examine our history to see Indigenous presence differently, to see Indigenous people, you know, kind of throughout history and maybe see these things from an Indigenous perspective? Um, you know, like when we talk about in church about the Babylonian exile and the Jews walking off into captivity and you think, wow, can you imagine such a thing? Well, sure I can. The church was a part of the Trail of Tears and sending the Cherokee <laughs> and the Potawatomi and others off into exile. The church was part of that. You, you, you know, you know, and all of these things, you know, like I've, I've often said, the church is very good at seeing itself as poor beleaguered Israel, not very good at seeing itself as Rome or Babylon, you know. Writer you know, or and, and so, uh, Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so that was a big part of the book was, you know, it's kind of unpacking because I grew up in the church, right? So it's kind of unpacking the way Canada and the U.S. grew up in the church and how can the church understand its role in all of this? 
because now we're back to kind of really examining things differently because you can't take responsibility for and apologize for things you don't admit you've done. And so when we always say, oh, those were bad Christians, oh, those weren't real Christians. Well, no, they absolutely understood themselves as real Christians. They absolutely understood themselves as Christians. And the contemporary church really isn't as different as it likes to think that it is. But it can be. It can be. I wouldn't be having these conversations if I didn't believe in the potential of the church to liberate us, you know, from this colonial mindset. It's just it's just so tangled up that we need to be willing to look at it. And so that's kind of really the first two thirds of the book is looking at history and looking, you know, here and there at the church's role in these different things. And then the last third of the book is kind of that path forward. Okay, now what? Now what do we do? Now that we've taken this other look at history, at what our relationships have been, how do we move forward and become good kin, become good relatives? How do we reimagine a future where we all have a place, not just as, you know, some kind of flattened Christian community that we're, you know, we're all in, you know, what that Pete Seeger song and houses made of ticky tacky and we all look just the same. Patty, I, as I listen to you talk and I'm, I'm sure both our members and other leaders listening are, are feeling this uh, just in the way that you're communicating. Um, you know, you've stared at a lot of, truth and grown up in and experienced and and related with a, a lot of impact uh, over the years that the, the the church has had in you know really deteriorating and, and denigrating the relationship uh, with with indigenous folks and yet you're so hopeful uh, like do you actually have hope that the church can become better relatives with the indigenous community around it? And what contributes to that? Because that more than anything, as I've gotten to know you and, and experienced even vicariously your impact on our church, particularly through our good relatives team, it's been the hope filled voice that you've been that has struck me the most. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from relationships. <laughs> it really does. It comes and, 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 you know, and I see Christians out there being abolitionists and, you know, kind of working with working with indigenous communities without. Years ago in the 80s, um, Gary, Gary and I went to this conference, Friendship Evangelism, and I think that's still a thing. Um, and now it just seems so profoundly sad to me, these relationships that are formed and built for the express purpose of evangelizing and proselytizing. But I know people who are, in, you know, Christians who are forming relationships with indigenous communities that have absolutely nothing to do with proselytizing or evangelizing them. It's about learning and listening. And I mean, Sue, Sue, uh, sorry, Sarah Augustine, I heard her speak and she says, nobody ever asks what good news we might have for you. You know, and, and so hearing, you know, and friendship, friends with uh, Christians who are listening for that, who aren't just you know, kind of listening just long enough to tell me about Jesus, you know, to tell me the good news, but are listening for what good news do indigenous communities have? What does the land, what does the land have to say? What do the, what does the water, what does all of creation, the Bible is, describes a creation that is alive and sentient and has its own relationship, you know, with, with the creator. So shouldn't we be listening to that rather than just listening for what God might be saying through those things? Right. Like we just we reduce those things to empty shells and we do that to people, too. We listen for what God might be telling us through that person instead of listening to that person. And so that's what gives me hope. 
And also I think the text itself, there's so much possibility in the text that really gets, you know, kind of gets overlooked and diminished in service of the, uh, in service of, I don't know, always evangelizing or the world to come or whatever that, you know, we don't really look at what the text is saying about the relationships in the here and now. In the interest of completeness in this conversation, I'll ask the opposite question because I know that as hope-filled as you are, uh, you're also a firecracker and uh, have some opinions on some things. So tell me, especially to our church and to the church, like what kills hope the quickest for Indigenous folk, especially when it comes to the church? I really do think proselytizing. When, when I read over the notes, that was the first word that popped into my head. Because when you're proselytizing, you're not listening. You're not interested in what I might have to say to you know, and what I might have to say to you. It's a very, it's a very one-sided relationship, and this idea that we're all the same in Jesus, because that just difference doesn't have to be division, right? Like I don't stop being a woman when I walk into the church. I don't stop being indigenous when I walk into the church. But those hierarchies that colonialism has created out of those things, those things should not matter in the church, and so. I would have to say evangel. Like I belong to a drum group. We don't go out knocking on doors asking people if they've heard the good news of Nana Bujo. And yet people come to our drum group and they sing with us. And over time they become part of our community, right? So like we're not out there evangelizing Ojibwe culture, <laughs> but people come to us. And so I think for me, if the church is interested in relationship, that would be a really neat approach for it to take other than proselytizing, which is just, colonization um in religious words hmm. that's a scribble that down church leader that that uh, proselytizing <laughs> is just colonization in religious words that's that's fantastic hey uh we're running out of time at least for this first conversation i hope it isn't our last uh as you think about anything that you want to say to our members or to leaders listening uh any final challenges or encouragements when it comes to the christian church doing what it needs to do to become better relatives with the Indigenous community around where it finds itself? Um, I'm going to recommend buying my book, actually. That's what, that's what I'm going to land on. Well, because each chapter ends with you a task. You do that. It ends with something, uh, right? It, it, ends with, it ends with something, and, and, I, and I think it should be read in groups. And so I really like the idea of churches doing book studies based on indigenous authors. I mean, I think Randy Woodley is another, would be another really good one, um, you know, to build a book study around. Um, Daniel Rutenberg just came out with, um, she's a, a rabbi and she just came out with On Repentance and Repair, uh, which would also be a terrific book study. I think churches have a lot of um, potential in that regard because people come to church primed to learn things. And then they want to take those things they've learned home out into their communities, into their workplaces, into those, into those places. And so being able to do book studies, uh, you know, to do, you know, sermons that, you, you know, ask, you know, what, you know, you know, how might a black person hear this passage? How might an indigenous person hear this passage? Like my example with the trail of tears, um, you know, those kinds of things, being willing to look at it a little bit differently uh, is is hugely is hugely important, and I would also say, um, you know, to advocate upwards, whatever social problem the church is trying to work with or to donate towards or to help, 
there are larger structures that if the church and the denomination work together, you've got some significant social power to apply to political systems to make the kinds of change that would make the help you're giving less necessary. Like if you're, you're providing shelter, if we had adequate housing, how would that, you know, how much would that help? And I know Southridge does do a lot of that kind of advocacy work. But building relationships with Indigenous people means you can also do advocacy work around things that are specific to Indigenous issues. Hmm. Work upwards. I scribbled that down. That's fantastic, too. I think I would add to that, Patty, in in addition to everyone grabbing your book, which I would highly encourage, um, you know, if there are church leaders listening and are wondering how to take first steps and would just love a preliminary bridge of consultation, your willingness to be a voice at Southridge, I know we've got local church history, but, you know, if, especially if you're a leader listening in the GTA or especially in Southern Ontario, and, you know, it was an hour or two, you could make the drive, uh, your willingness to be a consulting voice who not only fully represents uh, Indigenous perspectives and experiences, but also has familiarity in your garden variety, predominantly white evangelical-ish uh, local church like ours. Like you, you, you've lived both worlds and have been profoundly helpful to us. Uh, if you're a church leader listening and are looking to take first steps beyond just getting Patty's book, uh, reach out to her and uh, uh, activate her as a, as a voice in your community. We've had you uh, share on Sunday mornings, which has been fantastic and expose you to our whole community and uh, continue to develop a, a closer relationship with you that way. So thanks so much for sharing with us today, Patty. I really appreciate it. I wish you all the best uh, as you Thank keep you. doing the podcast circuit, promoting Becoming Kin. <laughs> thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It was great. And to all of you, uh, we'll see you in about seven days' time as we continue finding our way together. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.